Good afternoon and good night to all those who end up joining me in these dark woods for this, The Great Journey Podcast. And I am your trail guide, Luke Keish. Here we go down the strange, bizarre, and spooky paths and trails of the unusual happenings and people which fill our world. So, would you kindly grab your thermoses and fill them up, and we'll head out for tonight's trail of LSD and its shadow, part two. Before we set out, we have to pay the undertaker, and this week's fee is, what is the difference between LSD and the church of LDS? One you take with a sugar cube, the other you take with a grain of salt. This week's trail will be over LSD and its shadow part two. Here we will look at individuals connected to the CIA and certain CIA officials that ran certain projects during the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Then we will look at the particular projects that went on during the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s for the CIA and the sub-projects involved in those as well and we will try to detail as much as we can with whatever information is available. Then I will give my thoughts on some of the people that I drew connection to the CIA with in this trail and last week's trail, and then we will go over some of the projects and sub-projects that I want to give my thoughts on as well. And lastly, we will end with the Mythological Minute this week, which will be in the mountains of China. So let's get into this week's trail. This first campfire that we will be doing on this episode will be pertaining to specific people, connections to the CIA, like a Billy Hitchcock, Tim Leary, uh, Ronald Stark, and then we will be getting into CIA employees, which would range from Captain Alfred M. Hibbert, Sidney Globet, Richard Helms, Alan Dulles. So let's get into the first campfire of this trail.
The first person I want to talk about is William Billy Mellon Hitchcock. Hitchcock has several connections to the CIA and might be some of the reasons why he partnered up with Tim Leary during the beginnings of the 60s and let Leary use his mansion and support him financially and also drew connections with the Brotherhood of Eternal Love for the same purpose. Firstly, Richard Helms, the director of the CIA from 1966 to 1973, was in regular contact with the Mellon family before and during the time that Billy started being connected with individuals like Tim Leary and certain others in the psychedelic movement. Then, secondly, you have the banks that he used in so many of the operations for either himself or the money laundering or funding of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love and other people that also were in collaboration with the Brotherhood of Eternal Love like Tim Scully and Nick Sands. These banks have several connections to the CIA, specifically that the banks he used at uh, what's called Castle Bank and Trust have specific accounts linked to the CIA and is stated to be started as a CIA front in the Bahamas by a former OSS Paul Hellowell as well as people like Richard Nixon used this bank, uh, George H.W. Bush which was the CIA director in the 90s and then Robert Vesco as well as several mafia dons also used this bank as well and then lastly there was Billy had supported something called the Resorts of International and this was also discovered to be a CIA front later on and a private Republican vault for documents and money basically on offshore accounts and this was all undercovered in Jim Hogan's book Spooks. In that same book Jim Hogan also had developed a connection between Billy and a Dr. Stevens which he ran a sex ring which was also kind of involved in what's called the Fumo affair and then there wasn't much to talk about with Billy particularly with the CIA but there were some like I said incredible information that needed to be said about him and his connections with them during the times that he was also helping out the Brotherhood of Eternal Love and his progressive support of Tim Leary. Most of the stuff with Tim Leary's connection to the CIA isn't 100% definite but what I did end up finding out about him come from interviews that Tim Leary himself gave a Mary Pinchcock Myers and her husband Cord Myers then other interviews done with Kenneth O'Donnell and records from government agents that were uncovered at a later date in commissions during the 70s. So the first connection to Leary and the CIA is evident by Leary's own statements in his book and in a 1970s interview he gave and then Mary Pinchcock Myers' personal journal, statements and documents from her husband Cord Myers, and official statements made by Kenneth O'Donnell, President Secretary to JFK. So let's start with Mary and Cord Myers, her husband. In 1945, he was an American delegate, and slowly he was transitioned over to the CIA by 1950 and became their International Relations Division Chief. And Mary was stated to be in an affair with JFK after they divorced. But for Leary, around 1954 to about 1959, he was researching at Kenzer Foundation Hospital. Here, Leary came up with what was called the Leary, a personality test which the CIA used for the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And 
While here, he became good friends with a Frank Barron, who was a CIA official employee since 1953. And after their time at the hospital, Frank ended up following Leary in 1960 to Harvard, where Leary conducted experiments there on LSD and certain other psychedelics. While here, Frank in introduced Leary to a Harry Murray, a former OSS, which was a pre-CIA organization, psychologist who monitored military experiments on a subject called Truth Serum, which took illicit drugs to uncover information in interrogations, and a Martin Orney, another researcher at Harvard who was funded by the CIA through a shell company, which he was not aware of at the time. These two men with Aldous Huxley were stated by Leary to urge him to form a secret order of LSD Illuminati to further the spread of psychedelics and influence the people for the purpose of human betterment. Then in 1962, Mary Myers, which like I said, divorced from her husband, was having an affair with JFK and was confirmed by Kenneth O'Donnell, which was his secretary of state. In personal writings of Leary and Mary, it shows that she visited Leary to get LSD, saying, A friend who's a very important man who wants to try LSD for himself wants some. And later goes on about some government stuff and Leary's work, as in, Use of drugs for warfare, for espionage, for brainwashing. Teach us how to run sessions, use drugs to do good. And these were basically just little transcripts between each other, I'm just assuming short form messages, that's why they were in this type of choppy format. The article didn't really say, state. Leary seemed to agree to this, and records show that the university ended up giving her samples and a personal training course over two sessions, and Leary and her ended up staying in touch after this. Then, Mary goes to see JFK while the First Lady is away in July 1962 at his summer house, in Heinsonport. There, she describes this to James Trout of the Washington Post. Mary and the president smoked two joints, and this prompted him to state, this isn't at all like cocaine. I'll get you some of that. But Mary was doing this to do what Leary taught her, was first loosen him up in a benevolent state, then turn him on by dosing him with LSD. She did so, and as soon as it kicked in, he went to the Harry Truman balcony to look at the roses, and that's all Mary officially said about this meeting. But I suspect with JFK and her, a lot more happened that night. Then, during a meeting between Mary and Leary at Boston Ritz Hotel, and according to Leary's own statements, this is what happened. She alluded to her hush-hush love affair and top people in Washington are turning on, then moved on to say, Do you remember the American Veterans Committee, the liberal veterans group you belonged to after the war? The CIA started that. The CIA creates radical journals and started organizations and ran them with deep cover agents. Dissident organizations in academia are also controlled. After Leary questioned her on this, she returned with, I knocked you down with those facts to get your attention. It's a standard intelligence trick. She confided to that the CIA has not only been running left-wing groups as a front, but has also been more into the psychedelic researching than he could even know. She continued saying, You were doing 
exploratory work the CIA tried to do in the 1950s. So they're more than happy to have you do their research for them since drug research is of vital importance to the intelligence agencies of this country. You will be allowed to work on your experiments as long as you keep it quiet. But Leary started ramping up his trials and experiments that he was doing at Harvard and pushed things a little bit too far with Mary sending him a warning in 1963, which Leary ended up getting at a psychedelic summer camp in Mexico, which was a letter and stated this, Your sessions are in jeopardy. They are attracting too much publicity. But for some reason, Mary still ends up bringing a bottle of pure liquid LSD to Melbrook Mansion in September 1963 and told Leary something which indicates how badly her experiments were going in Washington. We had eight intelligent women turning on the most powerful men in Washington, and then we got found out. I made a mistake in recruitment. A wife snitched on us. I've gotten mixed up in some dangerous matters. Then, they don't talk again till Leary states on December 1st, 1963, and he also states that it was over the JFK assassinations. And Leary claimed that Mary said this. They couldn't control him anymore. He was changing too fast. They've covered everything up, I'm afraid. Be careful. Then, on October 12th, 1964, Mary Myers is shot execution style, it's claimed, at 1245 on a park path in Georgetown Canal, Washington, D.C. She was identified by Ben Bradley, Cord Myers' brother-in-law and editor of the Washington Post. CIA Chief James Angleton confiscates and burns her diary, which only dealt with her affair with JFK. Her others were in the possession of James Trout and a man by the name of Raymond Crump Jr., a husband and father of five, was arrested for the murder and robbery of Mary. But her purse wasn't taken and there's no credible eyewitnesses to see the murder happen. Crump also had an alibi for the time of the murder. No murder weapon was found and on July 20th, 1965, a grand jury acquitted him, and the case still remains unsolved. And I just want to state right now, Mr. Crump was lucky since in the article it also states that he was an African-American laborer, and in the 1960s he could have been railroaded like so many others did around this time as well. But to continue with Leary, shortly after the FBI started observing Tim Leary, Cord Myers had began a project to expose a CIA leak for a front operation that they had and the operation was called Chaos. I only mention this because Leary's name is mentioned multiple times in memos. This was the time when Leary was on the run during the late 60s and early 70s. Some of these memos state this. Leary? Question mark, is now overseas? A reply came back. Leary with Cleaver? Why? A document detailed Cleaver taking Leary and his wife as hostages. And that is about all that is stated on the particular memos and documents with Project Chaos. Then, when Ronald Stark took over the operations of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love and was partially a CIA operative anyways, they produced a bad batch of LSD 
which made it seem like the Brotherhood of Eternal Love and Tim Leary, which was still associated with the Brotherhood at this time, was a part of a CIA plot to ruin the LSD movement by the public eyes. And finally, you have certain bank accounts at the CIA Castle Bank, again, the same one that Billy Hitchcock had used. Uh, Leary had several accounts there, and then also... Leary in his life later specifically claimed that he was never paid directly by the CIA in any interviews or conversations he had about his time during the 60s and 70s. And that clears up for everything that needs to be said on Tim Leary's connection with the CIA. Next we will move on to one of the first majorly suspected CIA operatives, but nothing was ever officially claimed by the CIA, just other organizations and other governments, and that is a Ronald Stark. And in certain articles dealing with the Brotherhood of Eternal Love that I did two trails back, he was stated as the name was Robert, but in more of the CIA-related documents and articles related to this man, it Ronald Stark is what most people tend to call him but this man was a con artist a mover and shaker and knew almost all the underground drug connections that you would need terrorist organizations cults he was connected to all of them uh, Stark was allegedly the CIA's number one source for black market drugs and running drug ops for them to set up organizational funding for the CIA or procure them LSD or other illicit drugs to use in experiments. He was born in New York 1938 as Ronald Shitsky and at the age of 24 was arrested for false application for government ID and after violating a probation he goes to Lewisburg Federal Prison in Pennsylvania. Here he changed his name to Ronald Hadley Clark, and then after he got out, he got a researcher job at Belva Mental Hospital, and by the end of 1967, his net worth was just around three grand, and by the next year somehow, he was a millionaire. Stark personally claimed this was because of his relation to a Whitney family, one of the most wealthy clans in America, and some say that they are in higher wealth than the Rockefellers or the Morgans and some other rich families in America. And that he procured all this millions from a trust fund that he had been set up by his family. After this, we don't know much about where he went. We just know he starts operating on about four continents, posing as medical doctors, chemists, gourmet chefs, collectors of fine arts, and even spiritual leader. He's been traced to be involved in operations in at least 20 different countries, ranging from legal to criminal organizations. He spoke at least 10 different languages, including French, German, Arabic, Chinese, and more. Stark's ideals were thought to come from a book by a Robert Heinzlin, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, and is claimed to have carried it everywhere he went. And like I said, most of his activities are murky and jumbled, especially his early activities, according to journalist Jerry McDonald, who traces some of Stark's actions to being in something called the end stages of Sea Supply before it became Sea Org in 1967. And then Stark was also seen participating in the Sorburn 
uprising and also seen participating in the 1969's Hot Autumn. And then around the time that John Griggs, the leader of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, dies from a synthetic psilocybin overdose, which is also claimed to be the a same synthetic psilocybin that MKUltra experiments were using at the same time. And Stark ended up weaseling his way into the Brotherhood of Eternal Love after this by bringing them a kilogram bottle of pure liquid LSD, which was broken up into 5 million doses of 200 micrograms each. And he stated a mission statement that he wanted to follow was facilitate the overthrow of political systems of both capitalist West and communist East by inducing alternate altered states of consciousness in millions of people. Then Stark took the reins of the group and went to Britain to meet with a Dr. David Solomon and Dr. Richard Kemp from the Tavistock Institute's radical psychiatric movement. And Stark brought Kemp back to meet Tim Scully and Nick Sands to learn how to set up a lab for Stark in Paris and on its first run made a kilo of LSD. Then Stark started to use the Brotherhood of Eternal Love's U.S. Embassy con contact Ahmed Taki to bring hashish to the U.S. from Afghanistan. At the same time, he visited Afghanistan to set up a new lab to make hygienic THC derived from Afghan hashish oil. While with the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, Stark set up LSD labs in Brussels, Belgium, Germany, and he started to run a cocaine ring in the San Francisco Bay Area, unaware of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love members. Then, by the end of 1971, Stark got a tip from the CIA to shut down his Paris lab and got in touch with Weatherman Terrorist Group to break Leary out of prison, paying them $25,000 to do so. But then in 1972, his Brussels location was shut down after Stark's lawyer, who drew the charter for his front corporations got investigated by the IRS and questions which caused the DEA to close the facility. Then the raids of 1972 and the trial in 1973 of the Brotherhood of Internal Love happened but didn't really affect Stark since he moved on to the European stage, going to Italy first. Here he dealt with Sicilian mafiosos, secret service officers of the Italian government, and political extremist groups from both left and right wing. He also was in contact with U.S. and other embassies during this time as well. Occasionally, Stark would go to Baalbek region of Lebanon to Shiite Muslim sect for hashish. The man Stark dealt with was Imad Musha Sadar, a powerful Shiite warlord in charge of 6,000 men and the area he was in was under the control of the Palestine Liberation Organization. He continued his drug operations until February 1975 when he was arrested in Italy after an, an anonymous phone call of a man selling drugs in the hotel at Bonalona. And three days after the phone call, Stark was arrested in the hotel with the possession of 4,600 kilos of marijuana, morphine, cocaine, and other substances. He was arrested as Mr. Terence W. Abbott 
since he had a valid British passport at the time with ID 348489A and was issued 1973. On investigation of this valid passport, the British government refused to release any information or how he got it or how he was in possession of it. At the same time, the FBI, DEA, and the U.S. State Department didn't call for as his extradition in connection to the Brotherhood of Eternal Love drug smuggling scandal, and they wouldn't release any information to help in the prosecution of Mr. Stark. Once his identity was revealed, a safety deposit box in Rome was recovered containing a liquid vial with an unknown liquid inside of it. After testing, it is assumed to be close to liquid LSD. And then there was a formula for Orange Sunshine LSD, which was popularized by the Brotherhood of Eternal Love cult, and liquid cocaine. Stark was sent to Don Bosco Prison in Pisa, and on spring 1976, he joined up with Renato Criseo, the leader of the Italian terrorist group, the Red Brigades. After getting involved with this group, he arranged a meeting with Chief Prosecutor of Pisa. When Stark met with the prosecutor, he explained that Renato was, was plotting to assassinate Judge Francisco Coco of, of GNO, who was presiding over a case of about 50 Red Brigades men. But in June 1976, the judge was murdered, and a five-time Italian primer, Aldo Moro, was kidnapped and executed by the same group. Stark, though, was connected to the Aldor Moro matter and was transferred to a different facility where here he was finally sentenced to 14 years and $60,000 in a fine for drug trafficking. Here, Stark was also in constant contact with American and British consulate officials, but none of the American officials ever filed for extradition still with regards to him being wanted for the Brotherhood of Eternal Love conspiracy charges. Stark also was in communication regularly with representatives of Libyan diplomatic corps and Italian secret service. He also was claimed to directly talk with General Vito Misili, who was paid $800,000 by the CIA over the course of his career as chief of the Italian military intelligence, which he was later implicated also in neo-fascist coup against the Italian government. Though at an appeal for Stark's trial, he changed his name to Kururi on a radical Palestine and spoke in fluent Arabic as he spelled out details of how he was a part of an international terrorist group in Lebanon called Group 14 which ended up making his appeal fail. But Italians took a new interest in Stark after this, when another terrorist leader who knew him was arrested and had a Palestine Liberation Organization's hand-drawn map of their camp, which this person said got from Stark. Then, the Italian government in June 1978 assigned Grisanio Gori to investigate Stark's connections and employment. A few weeks later, Gori was killed in a car accident. Stark was charged with armed banditry, but never stood trial for this. 
After this, Stark was released from prison on April 1979 on the orders of Judge Fuida, stating an impressive series of scrupulous enumerated proofs that Stark was actually a CIA agent. Many circumstances suggest that from 1960s onwards, Stark belonged to the American Secret Services. Sometime later, the Italian government's parliamentary commission came out with a report on domestic terrorism with a whole section titled The Case of Ronald Stark, claiming Stark was a CIA asset and Stark was connected with the CIA from 1960 on. Judge Foida also stated the entire Brotherhood of Eternal Love was an operation of Stark's and his finances were suspicious in connection to organizations they were in. After this, he laid low until 1982 when he was arrested in Holland for trafficking hashish, cocaine, heroin. Then, in the following year after his arrest, he was deported to the U.S. since the Brotherhood of Eternal Love drug conspiracy charges were still pending. When he was brought back to the U.S., it was done in secret, with the media not even knowing until much later and Stark only spent a couple months in a San Francisco jail preparing his defense until the Justice Department dropped all charges claiming too many years had passed to prosecute. Then he died in December 1984 of a heart attack out of nowhere and no autopsy was done and no other examinations were done on his body afterwards. And that basically finishes up Ronald Stark besides a couple other things I wanted to add on. Uh, Stark always claimed that he was a CIA agent, but he also claimed he was an association of other organizations. And most of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love who were arrested in 1973 uh, believe Stark was a government agent in some capacity or other. There is also a claim that Stark was selling drugs and gave funding to what's called the Progress Church of the Final Judgment, according to remarks from Robert de Grimston's wife and William Sims Brainberg, who studied the group. And the last smallish point with Stark is his connection to Charles Manson and David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. Um, the pair was said to have been part of a cult called the 4P Movement, or the Children. Uh, Stark was also implicated in the drug trafficking portion of this cult, which was also involved in sex, drug trafficking, uh, production of snuff films, and were a organization of contract killers. Uh, this evidence was researched and brought forward by Murray Taylor in his book, The Ultimate Evil. Now to get into the first military personnel person we will be talking about, and that is Captain Alfred M. Hibbert. And he also went by the name Johnny Appleseed of LSD. He was described as a man of mirrors and shadows, only known by his close friends. Most information comes from interviews that he gave himself or business partners that he worked with that gave interviews and documents from projects that he worked on and certain organizations he was also attached to. But I still want to dis discuss him and his projects because he was also stated to be involved in some of the other stuff we will talk about in the second part of this episode. But let's start with him when he was 18 in 1919. Hubbard invented what was called Hubbard Energy Transformer, a radioactive battery 
that couldn't be explained with modern technology according to the Seattle Post Intelligence. They also stated in that same article it was inside a 11 by 14 inch box and powered a ferry sized vessel around Seattle's Portico Bay nonstop for three days. After that, 50% of the patent was bought by Radium Corporation of Pittsburgh for $75,000 and the device has never been used or resurfaced since. Then he got into a little trouble in the early 1920s. Equipped with a sophisticated ship to shore communication system in his cab's trunk, he helped rum runners ferry booze past the U.S. and Canadian Coast Guards during Prohibition, but got caught by the FBI and served 18 months in prison. After his release, he was scouted out by Alan Dulles, then Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, and he was also pardoned for all his wrongdoings in a general pardon 2676 by Harry S. Truman. This let him join the OSS as an agent and slightly involved in the Manhattan Project. He specialized as a merchant marine carrying heavy cargo from San Diego to Canada during the end of the war. This time is also when he started getting called the captain. He ended his services and with connections and cash from his invention, he founded Marine Manufacturing, a Vancouver charter boat company. And doing all this in his early 40s, he became a millionaire. The captain then in 1950s was the scientific director of the Uranium Company of Vancouver and around this time, he owned a Canadian island called Damon Island off the coast of Vancouver. Here he kept his fleet of aircrafts and a 100-foot yacht. Then one day when reading the Herbert Journal in 1951 about behavior of rats given LSD, this caused him to begin a journey. The captain left his uranium company and went out to Sandoz Laboratories. Here he produced a gram of LSD and stores it in a safety deposit vault in Zurich Airport. Then he starts trafficking it to various places, but the Swiss officials detain him for violation of international drug laws. After a Swiss tribunal, they void his passport for five years and deport him. Then he travels to Czechoslovakia, making another gram of tablet LSD from Champalo, a division of Sofa Pharmaceuticals, he took this back to the U.S. and met a Dr. Humphrey Oseman at Weyburn Hospital in Saskatchewan, Canada to try and obtain mescaline, which was used in experiments on schizophrenia patients here. According to Dr. Oseman's account, he was happy to give him some. Also, sometime during this, he got a Ph.D. in biopsychology from Taylor University, which is stated to be not so good of a university. Now being a doctor, he went to go meet Ross McLean in 1957 and Ross hired him to work at the Hollywood Hospital in New Westminster, Canada to research psychedelic therapy for alcoholism. Then Ross and the captain had a disagreement near the end of 1957 and the captain left the Hollywood Hospital, but before he left, he was able to attain a IND number one from the FDA which is a investigational new drug permit meaning the captain could experiment with LSD in the United States. So he took this and together with Abram Hoffer and Dr. Oseman they pioneered a psychedelic regime with a addiction recovery rate of 60% to 70% in 1960. 
During this project, the captain and Dr. Erzman's research was recruited by Willis Harris of Stanford Research Institute, SRI of Stanford University. Around 1961, the captain was specifically assigned to Alternative Futures Program, which performed future-oriented strategic plans for corporations and government agencies. Willis said this about his and the captain's goal and the job. To provide the LSD experience to political and intellectual leaders around the world. Al's job was to run the special LSD sessions for us. So the captain started to spread LSD. One of the first people he was to see was Tim Leary. And this is how Leary describes his meeting with the captain. His head shorn to a crew cut, wearing a pair of military uniform with a holstered long-barreled Colt 45. He blew in, laying down the most incredible atmosphere of mystery and flamboyance, and really impressive bullshit. He was pissed off. His Rolls Royce was, had broken down on the freeway, so he went to a payphone and called the company in London. That's what kind of guy he was. He started name-dropping like you wouldn't believe. He claimed he was friends with the Pope. The interviewer interjected, did you believe him? Larry continued, well, yeah, no question. He came with gifts of LSD to trade for psilocybin, which was a synthetic magic mushroom. It was impressive. After the captain's meeting with Tim Leary, he went on to expose over 6,000 people to LSD before it became illegal. Some of those people were leaders in the North American Catholic Church, Bill Wilson, the founder of AA, Aldous Huxley, most of the Beverly Hills psychiatrist, Cary Grant, James Coburn, Jack Nicholson, novelist, analyst, Nin, a filmmaker, Stanley Kubrick, certain people in prime minister roles and high officials in government around the world. But when LSD became illegal, the captain wasn't able to get any more and didn't have any connections with anybody else. And when his finances ended up drying up in 1968, he ended up selling his island. With that, he loaded up some of his boats with some equipment and experiments that he had to stay at Melano Park and a ranch in Vancouver he still had. Then he semi-retired in 1974 to deal with some medical issues till 1978. He tried to get a license to test LSD on terminally ill cancer patients but was denied. He ended up dying nearly broke on August 31st 1982 at the age of 81. And that ends all the information I wanted to discuss with Captain Alfred M. Hubbard. Next is Sidney Globet or his alias Joseph Schroeder. He was born in 1918 in New York. He attended the City College of New York and Arkansas Tech University and finished at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1940 to get his undergraduate degree in chemistry and obtaining magnum cum laude as well. After this, he went straight to California Institute of Technology to get his PhD in chemistry. By 1951, at the age of 33, Sidney joined the CIA as poison expert, heading the chemical division of technical services staff, the TSS. Here, he gained the nickname of Black Sorcerer, 
and Dirty Trickster because it is lethal poison and drug experiments and plans on using them. Because of this, he also became one of the heads of the MK Ultra project on orders of Alan Dulles, the CIA director at the time. And as head, he sponsored Dr. Irwin Cameron and Harris Isabel personally. Sidney is also the person indicated as giving Frank Olson LSD during the ends of Operation Midnight Climax. He was also personally involved in MKUltra Subproject 15, dealing with magic support. Subproject 18, dealing with a alternative LSD solution. Subproject 27, the development of a microwave gun and a MK Chickwick, which only details of being stationed in South America for assassination contracts. During his time with the MKUltra project, he worked with the Department of Defense and Advanced Research Projects Agency, ARPA. He also was a liaison for Lockheed Martin for a project Aquatone, which developed the U-2 spy plane and set up safe houses for Lockheed Aeronautic Services Division in New York and L.A. Around March 1960, a Richard Bristle head of directorial plans which was created as the CIA black ops department required Sydney for the Cuban project this project was to assassinate Fidel Castro and Sydney thought up a lot of schemes to get this done like spraying Fidel's TV studio with LSD putting thallium in his shoes to make him lose his hair a poison cigar poison put in his wetsuit or a poisoned covered fountain pen. He also came up with an idea of an exploding conch shell which was remotely activated. None were successful. So Sidney was moved to the assignment of assassinating Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba of the Congo. Sidney came up with a plan to put poison in his toothpaste and personally transported the solution to Larry Divin, the CIA chief in the Congo region. Larry, though, ended up declining the assignment, which didn't really matter much since the prime minister was killed by one of his own soldiers later on. Then, in 1972, he retired from the CIA, and when he left, he destroyed most of the files about himself or the projects he led in MKUltra and other projects we will discuss later. This was only revealed later in the 1975's Church Senate Committee. Sidney testified to the Church Committee under his alias Joseph Schrieder. After this, he lived on a farm in Culpeper, Virginia, till he died March 7, 1999. The details aren't known since his wife didn't disclose his cause of death or elect for an autopsy to be done. Now we will get into CIA directors. The first one we will talk about is Alan W. Dulles. Alan Dulles was born 1893 in New York from a political family with his grandfather being President Benjamin Harris's Secretary of the State and his uncle was President Woodrow Wilson's Secretary of State too. Alan got his first degree from Princeton University and went to be in the American Diplomat Services in 1960 and around 1920 he married Clover Todd 
and had three children with her. As a diplomat, he was put at Vienna, Berlin, Paris, Berlin, and in 1921, Dulles was put at the embassy in Istanbul, Turkey, where it is alleged that he exposed a document called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Then, in 1926, he changed from diplomat to a lawyer, getting a degree in law from George Washington University, and worked with his brother at Sullivan and Cromwell Law Firm. When there, he became the director of the Council on Foreign Relations by 1927, then secretary in 1933. During this time, he met Adolf Hitler and Mussolini and visited a lot of Germany during 1935. Dulles then was recruited by the British Security Coordination, the BSC, in early 1940. And then he was recruited by William Donovan, current director of the OSS. It should be noted too that the BSC and Dulles' office for the OSS were in the same building just a couple floors apart. It is not known if he took a job for the BSC at the same time as well. Dulles' mission at the OSS entailed gathering military intelligence from Germany's war strategies. Then, in 1944, he was able to obtain the V-1 and V-2 missile plans for the U.S. government. Then, World War II ended and the CIA was started. Soon after, Dulles joined in September 1947, also becoming deputy director. Most notably, Dulles was in charge of Operation Ajax, a plan to overthrow President Muhammad Mojda, M-O-S-A-D-E-E-G-H, which was resulting in success. He was also highly involved in Operations Bluebird, Artichoke, and MKUltra. Then, in 1954, he organized PB slash success to overthrow President Jacob Arabins. It was a success as well, so well that President Eisenhower even invited Dulles and others to the White House for a personal debriefing. But when the Bay of Pigs happened, Dulles was forced to resign, and even Kennedy remarked this, In a parliamentary government, I'd have to resign. But in this government, I can't. So you and Dulles have to. Kennedy was also talking to a Richard Bristle at that time as well. After he left the CIA, he didn't do much. He was called back by LBJ to be on the Warren Commission in 1963 with Gerald Ford and John J. McCloy, Richard B. Russell, John S. Cooper, and Thomas H. Bogus. Then, on January 29, 1969, Dulles dies in what some sources state he died of cancer, and some others state that he died when he got influenza complicated by pneumonia. And that finishes off Alan Dulles. Next person is Richard Helms. He was born 1913 in Philadelphia and graduated from Williams College in Massachusetts. Then he moved on to join the United Press News Agency. In 1936, he was sent to Nazi Germany to cover the Berlin Olympic Games. On his return, he joined the Indianapolis Times Advertising Department 
Then he got to the National Advertising Manager's position. But after Pearl Harbor, he joined the U.S. Navy and transferred to the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, which was made by Wild William Donovan. After the war ended, Helms helped interview Nazi war criminals and put in charge of intelligence and counterintelligence activities in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. The following year, the OSS became the CIA, and Helms' first task under them was to mount a massive covert campaign against Communist Party during the Italian general election. From Helms' success, Harry S. Truman established the Office of Policy Coordination, which performed covert anti-communist operations around the world, and then combined it with the Office of Special Operations to make the decorative of plans, the DPP, and Frank Wisner was made the head and Helms was his chief of operations. For unknown reasons, Frank had a mental breakdown causing manic depression in December 1956. It caused Helms to take over temporarily and Frank was sent to Shepherd Pratt Institute near Baltimore for electroconvulsion therapy. Frank's treatment was unsuccessful but was released in 1958 and he was too ill to return to his original duties so Alan Dulles sent him to the CIA chief of station in London, England. Alan also put Richard Bristle in charge of the DPP and Helms as his deputy. Together they created the CIA's Black Operations or known as Executive Actions a plan to remove unfriendly foreign leaders from power. In a Senate hearing later, it's revealed that some of the leaders they took out were Jacob Arabins of the Guatemalan government in 1954 because he made a land reform law that didn't favor the United States and nationalized a United Fruit Company. Then the Prime Minister of the Congo, Patrice Lumbaba, uh, for trade embargoes that he put on the U.S., Rafael Trulillo from the Dominican Republic, and multiple generals of the Iraq area to gain influence of that said area. And Fidel Castro was a top target, but they were never able to accomplish the mission of assassinating him. Bristles and Helms personally came up with Operation Mongoose to overthrow Castro. This involved a budget of $13 million to train a paramilitary force outside of Cuba for guerrilla action. 400 full-time CIA officers were needed to carry out this mission, but it ended up failing. Helms and Bristle then went to try in 1960 to have Mafia bosses John Roselli and Sam Gutania to carry it out, and then they ended up recruiting later Carlos Marcelio Satos Traficia and Meyer Lansky to kill Castro, Castro paying $1,050 to the Mafia for this. Shortly after, the Bay of Pigs happened, resulting in Alan Dulles' firing and Bristles' forced re resignation. Helms then became involved in Southern Vietnam, forcing the overthrow of Southern Vietnam President in November 1963. Then, when JFK was assassinated and LBJ took over, he put Admiral William Rayborn as head of the CIA 
and Helms as his deputy. But within a year, he was moved to head of the CIA. And while in this position and under President Richard Nixon, he started the Houston Plan, which was for all the country's security services to combine in a massive internal surveillance operation. Upon doing so, this meant Helms and the CIA broke multiple federal laws since the CIA is not allowed to operate within the United States at all. Then, Nixon orders Helms in 1970 to stop Salvador Alindi from getting elected in Chile because the U.S. companies with factories there feared what might happen if he was elected since he was a socialist. This failed, so Nixon changed his orders to Helms to help the Chilean armed forces to overthrow Aldini and is successful on September 11, 1973. Then Nixon's Watergate scandal came out and Nixon ordered Helms to pay hush money to E. Edward Hunt who is blackmailing the government after Nixon sent him to steal documents at Watergate Hotel. Helms refused to help so Nixon fired Helms. He went on to be the U.S. ambassador to Iran for a few months later, and shortly retiring after that. But in 1975, a Senate hearing investigating the CIA foreign affairs brought Helms in to discuss his involvement in the Chilean elections talked about earlier. And during this, he is known to have lied under oath, saying that he had no connection directly financially or physically to this. Then in 19... 76, the Frank Church Committee found Helms was lying about his involvement in the Chilean government scandal and in the multiple documents related to MKUltra that he ended up burning and destroying upon leaving the CIA. He also had to give testimony on that during the Frank Church Committee. In that same committee, it was found out that he was also connected to illegal domestic surveillance operations and to MKUltra projects and the authorization and approval of many of the sub-projects involved in that and it, he was also involved in a Operation Mockingbird before the MKUltra projects. Over a couple more Senate hearings and other committee hearings on the CIA's action in the late 70s and early 80s, nothing really came of it to affect Helms. Uh, except for evidence that Lee Harvey Oswald may have been a operative for the executive actions program, but no evidence has came forward to collaborate that since Richard Helms ended up dying on October 22, 2002, with no clarifications on how or where. And that is all for Richard Helms. And with that too, that finishes up this first campfire going over people and individuals linked to the CIA and other clandestine projects during the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, next, we will be getting into uh, the actual projects that are centered around what I wanted to talk about today. So, let's move on. So this next campfire will go over the projects and sub-projects that I want to talk about today that all had experimentalization with LSD and other psychedelics and other mind-altering substances in a way to have behavioral modification. But first, before we get into the projects, sub-projects, and histories of them, there are two things that I need to get out of the way that won't be brought up much else besides the very limited capacities. Uh, the first is that most of this comes from various Senate committees, hearings, uh, Freedom of Information Act requests, 
uh, research made by several universities, journalists, and researchers in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and multiple lawsuits which followed the project's end in 1970s, and most of which I will talk about a little too at the very end of this with given names of the researchers and all that. Uh, the second thing I want to talk about before we get into it is the use of Operation Paperclip scientists during this. Towards the end of World War II, where the U.S. was recruiting Nazi scientists that were in charge of the concentration camps and tried to get out of their war crimes for what they did with the Nazis, were brought over to the U.S. for their scientific knowledge and certain things that they did over in Nazi Germany. And most of them were pardoned of all their crimes to work on projects for the U.S. In Project Bluebird, Artichoke, Midnight Climax, and MK Ultra, six of these scientists were used in key spots during these projects, specifically Dr. Hibertus Strughold, who carried out experiments for the Nazis like submerging prisoners in freezing water, putting them in air pressure chambers. He would perform surgeries without anesthetics, and he would perform lobotomies also without them. And he was also known to be involved in numerous projects and sub-projects that we will talk about later. So the first segment will be over OSS to Bluebird, basically. The projects the CIA did in the 50s and 60s started in the 40s with the OSS Project Chatter to find a truth serum through testing all kinds of drugs from cocaine to marijuana. When the CIA was made, it took over OSS operations and the role they occupied, and around the end of 1949, a Project Bluebird was started. The CIA purchased 100 million doses of LSD from Sandoz Pharmaceuticals, getting a certain amount a week. Later, getting Ellie Lilly Pharmaceuticals to create LSD for the projects later. The first spe specific experiment for Bluebird was Dr. Hinkle and Dr. Hyde. Together, they set up a study at Boston Psychopathic Institute to test LSD on 100 patients. Then, a Sheffield Edwards headed the operations to conduct interrogations and experiment for experiments for the CIA, which included detailed research into the use of various drugs for subconscious isolation purposes, discovery of a means to condition personnel to prevent unauthorized extraction of information, memory enhancement, instruction in medical aspects of polygraph, aiding in the instruction of persons being trained in operational subconscious isolation, helping with SSP research programs, and this com came from an official memorandum from 27 February 1950. The structure of the project was detailed in another official memorandum labeled as Subject Project Bluebird to Director of CIA from Chief of Security Staff, April 5, 1950. The names were redacted. The first thing was to form the creation of an interrogation team with the funds of $65,515 being approved. The team would use polygraph drugs and hypnosis to attain information through interrogation. The reasons for the method stem from an experiment in Hungary piquing the interest of CIA agents in the area. The team should consist of a psychiatrist, hypnosist, and a technician 
for the polygraph machine. Two of these three-man cells were needed. Various CIA subgroups were in charge of these interrogation teams. As stated, the yearly budget in 1950 was $65,515, paying one doctor $10,000 and the other $6,400. Then the hypnosis was paid $7,600 each, and the technicians were paid $4,600 each. And all of these were paid for by a I and SS under the CIA. Then on May 9, 1950, Dr. Chadwell had a meeting on Bluebird to increase its scope. One thing was to search through the Nuremberg trial papers on any information on drug, narco analyzation, and special interrogation techniques used. Second, they wanted to set up a program to collect information from U.S. agencies and public sources related to speech-inducing drugs, narco-analyzation, hypnotism, and three Soviet and satellite trials involving the previous two. One experiment that happened under Bluebird was at Bethesda Naval Hospital, which took American POWs returning from Korean captivity then subjected them to several behavior modification techniques, experimental drugs, hypnosis, and special interrogation methods, basically torture. Then another occurred on July 1950, happening in Japan, wherein a team of interrogators were sent to test behavioral techniques on humans. They told other U.S. officials they were there using intensive polygraph techniques but declassified documents show they instead were using a chemical sodium anthetol, which is a depressant, and benzodril, a stimulant, and pectoral toxin, a, another stimulant, using them on four prisoners to extract information. And they even tried to induce amnesia. This was considered a success even though most of the documents still was redacted. Three months later, a second series of experiments took place in Korea, only stated advanced techniques were to be used. One of the first black sites used by the CIA was used in Bluebird at Camp King near Frankfurt, Amen, Maine, Germany. The CIA stated they were developing extreme interrogation techniques and behavioral modifications. The only things known to happen there are what Frank Olson accounted there and some declassified documents saying that they used hypnosis, electric shock therapy, chemicals, bioweapons, and illegal and experimental drugs for interrogation purposes. This location was partially picked because of its access to prisoners from Germany and Soviet spies. Then on August 20th, 1951, Project Bluebird was officially renamed Project Artichoke and changed the directive to now include what they call in-house experiments, interrogation techniques, advanced grouping, hypnosis, and forced drug addiction. Most files on this project were destroyed and what is known is pieced together from surviving documents, memorandums, and records going over the broad strokes of what occurred. And also some documents from other departments and institutes that these experiments took place in. What's known is the project was overseen by a Paul F. Grainer. It should be noted that Paul was said by agents 
that he had a file on every homosexual and suspected homosexual among federal employment on Capitol Hill and in any other federal agency. And in 1953, State Department employee John C. Montgomery, Senator Lester C. Hunt killed themselves after being threatened with information on that list and becoming aware of its existence by Paul's staff. Around 1953, a memorandum from Paul Gaynor, the current CIA security research chief, addressed to Morris Allen, Operation Artichoke director, saying, It is imperative that we move forward more aggressively on identifying and securing a more reliable, ready group or groups on human research subjects for ongoing artichoke work. Allen suggests to Paul in another memo, there are some 4,000 American military men who are serving court-martial sentences in federal prison at the time. Offer reduced sentences. Artichoke teams secretly working in the prisons could be passed off as coming from nearby universities for research or research institutions. A week later, Allen added to it with another memo. Federal hospitals and institutions under the control of the U.S. public health services could be used as well. It seems to have been approved since documents were sent to Gaynor a few weeks later of the progress of experiments at three federal prisons and one reformatory. Then there were details of another experiment at St. Elizabeth Hospital, a VA hospital in Detroit, and one being done at a federal center for addiction research in Lexington, Kentucky. But the federal center for addiction research was ran by Dr. Harris Isbell. His experiments could only be described as torture on par with Nazi war crimes. Dr. Harris was a FDA's advisor committee on abuse of depressants and stimulant drugs and at the center was funded by NIMH and U.S. Navy. During his experiment, he tested 800 psychoactive chemicals, including LSD, and mainly used African Americans for his experiments, and in these experiments, he would force heroin addiction on people, and then, while on withdrawal, would observe the effects and would administer psychoactive drugs to see the effects. Another study he kept seven people on psychoactive drugs for 77 days straight and when they would fall asleep Harris would use electroshock on them to wake them back up. Most of this project was brought forward in the late 1990s by W. Henry Wall Jr. whose father was a physician and former senator who was unknowingly involved in this experiment and which ended up ruining his life. Now I want to read out a prominent document of Operation Artichoke, which was dated January 2nd, 1954, starting with the cover page. 1. Here with report of Artichoke team on first assignment. Considering the speed with which we had to operate, I believe it went extremely well. We were ready when called upon to for support. 2. I have left blank certain identities information which is known to a. I assume Morin Alice or Alan Dulles. 3. Date on bottom, 22 January 1954. Then a ton of redactions below it. Page 1. 1. Artichoke team visited redacted during a period 8 January to 15 January 1954. The purpose of the visit was to give an evaluation of a 
hypothetical problem, namely, can an individual of redacted descent be made to perform an act of attempted assassination involuntarily under the influence of artichoke? Two, problem. One, as a trigger mechanism, in quotes, for a bigger project, it was proposed that an individual of redacted descent approximately 35 years old, well-educated, proficient in English, and well-established socially, politically, in the redacted government be induced under artichoke to perform an act, involuntarily, of attempted assassination against a prominent redacted politician or, if necessary, against an American official. The subject was formerly in redacted employee but has since terminated and is now employed with redacted government. According to all available information, the subject would offer no further cooperation with redacted. Access to the subject would be extremely limited, probably limited to a single social meeting. Because the subject is a heavy drinker, it is proposed that the individual could be stupendously drugged through the medium of an alcoholic cocktail at a social party. Artichoke applied the subject in, and induced to perform the act of attempted assassination at a later date. All the above was to be accomplished at one involuntarily uncontrolled social meeting. After the act of attempted assassination was performed, it was assumed that the subject would be taken into custody by the redacted government and thereby disposed of, in quotations. Other personnel Reassurances by redacted teams of security involving the project techniques, personnel, and disposal of the subjects were not indicated. Page 2. 3. Conclusion. In answer to the hypothetical question, can an individual of redacted descent be made to perform an act of attempted assassination involuntarily under artichoke according to the above conditions, the answer in this case was possibly no because of the limited exposure to subject, stating, one, the conditions surrounding the subject, two, we would have none or at most very limited physical control and custody of the subject, three, access to the subject is strictly limited to a social engagement among a mixed group of both cleared and uncleared personnel. Then, four, the final answer, was that in review of the fact that successful completion of this proposed action of attempted assassination was insufficient to the overall project to wit whether it was even carried out or that the under crash conditions and appropriate authorization from headquarters, the artichoke team would undertake the problem in spite of operational limitations. In handwritten note at the bottom, is a eye with an eye through it. This would be made available if the request of A. And most of the other documents related to specifically artichoke were either destroyed or heavily redacted, so not really much other information can be dredged through it besides financial statements. So then we'll move on to their next one. In a memorandum from Richard Helms to CIA Director Alan Dulles, Project Artichoke had then changed to Project MKUltra on April 13, 1953. This project ran till 1964 and was minimally documented. 
in the first place. Then, when Richard Helms and others retired, they burned or destroyed all documents related to this project and other sub-projects. The first things they did with this project was establish and create the Human Ecology Fund and other things similar to this to channel money to research institutions, public and private. These fronts made transferring money and keeping it discreet easier. This fund was also used to fund hospitals, universities, and other state institutions, allowing the CIA to use experimentation on civilians without their knowledge and fund certain doctors and researchers without the knowledge that they were being funded by the CIA. Then the bulk of the CIA's MKUltra project on the scientific end was controlled by a Sidney Globet, and he was also involved in the charter for this project as well, which is research and development of chemical, biological, and radiological materials capable of employment in clandestine operations to control human behavior. In total, there have been 149 MKUltra subprojects uncovered by multiple Senate hearings being pieced together also from surviving documents, statements, and other facilities with copies of documented experiments that took place at their facilities. They discovered 14 subprojects dealt with behavioral modification through administration of drugs. Six of these clearly state test subjects were unwitting. Eight subprojects studied use of hypnosis. Four subprojects were dedicated to musicians and magic. I just want to pause right there. That's just a little weird. Don't know why. Nine subprojects dealt with use of sleep research and psychotherapy for behavioral modification. Seven subprojects were just for obtaining drugs and other chemicals, which could also implicate Ronald Stark from earlier. Six subprojects were to enlist individuals to research and attend semi-regular sem- seminars related to behavioral modification. 23 subprojects were assigned to study human motivation. Three subprojects were on polygraph research. Three subprojects dealt with getting funding for MKUltra overall. Six subprojects dealt with research on drugs and other biological materials to be used on humans. And this is also just a small amount of the real amount of projects since most of the information was destroyed like mentioned earlier so this is a small portion of the subprojects that are known and then out of those same documents outlined some things like 44 colleges and universities were used 15 research organizations and pharmaceutical companies were also involved 12 hospitals and three penile institutions in the United States were involved with MKUltra knowingly and unknowingly. Also implicated were 185 individual researchers and doctors conducting experiments and trials for MKUltra projects, but names weren't released, some of which knew they were involved, others again weren't aware of their involvement. Now to go over some of the subprojects in a little bit more detail with regards to their actual documents. First will be subproject 2. This project's scope 
was to be a contractual framework for the MKUltra field projects in a redacted area. Monitoring of select projects in the MKUltra in central redacted area. Service as general consultant and advisor. Funding for one year was allocated to $4,650. The first proposal listed the objective as to study the possible synergistic actions of drugs which may be appropriated for the use of abolishing consciousness. Reasons given for this is the belief two or more drugs used in combination are more effective and to find which combinations are good and which combinations could be potentially harmful. Then a second proposal later on, objective of study methods for the administration of drugs without the knowledge of the patient and create a manual on how to. Listed how they plan to do this by surveying methods which have been used by criminals in a stealthy way or a hidden method to administer drugs. Now let's move on to subproject 3 and this one is probably the most well known of the subprojects of MKUltra and is also given the other designation sometimes as Operation Midnight Climax. Richard Helms developed the proposal for this project. The objective to conduct experiments on unwitting subjects administrating drugs to them. Richard Helms put George White in overall control of this project. He was also currently an employee of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. He set up apartment safe houses in San Francisco and New York, which were furnished with two-way mirrors and observation areas, and had a series of audio and visual recording devices set up throughout the apartment. George White then hired a group of prostitutes at both locations, paying them $100 a night, and in some cases, if they were addicted to drugs, he would supply them with said drugs to keep them in his employment. White's mission for the prostitutes was to bring back unsuspecting Johns, generally drunks from a bar or any people on the side of the road or vagrants, bring them back to the locations, dose their drinks with whatever White left for them, and specifically in the San Francisco location, he was known to sit on a portable toilet, drinking and taking notes of the actions performed in the safe house through the two-way mirror, unaware to the participants inside. And George White wrote to Sidney Globet this, I was a very minor missionary, actually a heretic, but I toiled wholeheartedly in the vineyards because it was fun, fun, fun. Where else could a red-blooded boy kill, cheat, steal, rape, and pillage with the sanction and blessing of the all-highest? Pretty good stuff, Bruder. And the one big thing related to Operation Midnight Climax is the Frank Olson case. Frank Olson worked at the CIA Special Operations Division as a high-level Army biologic warfare scientist and worked with the Army Chemical Corps at Fort Deirdrick at, and, and was involved in multiple other biologically warfare divisions during 1943 to 1953. When he died, the specific work he did and his death is surrounded with unknown details and CIA cover-up work. 
But what we do know is that he conducted a wide, a wide variety of covert chemical weapon tests. He helped develop anthrax for the U.S. Army to use. In 1950 through 1953, he worked closely with Albert Hoffman at Sandoz Pharmaceuticals and became a part of Operation Bluebird, MK Naomi, and Operation Artichoke. He was also involved in the 1951 Pont Saint-Esprit incident where 500 people were affected by mass hallucinations and insanity resulting in seven people dying, two of those committing suicide, dozens put into asylums, and hundreds injured. After this, he moved to Camp King in Germany for their unconventional interrogation programs and saw the CIA using his biological agents for interrogations and to commit murder. The things Frank saw at Camp King seemed to change him since now he saw what his biological agents did and what the military intended to use them for. Once Frank returned to the U.S., he was invited to Deer Creek Lake Resort, or Fort Diedrich, both located in Maryland, on November 19, 1953. Frank was told this was a group retreat and a meeting on projects, but instead it was intended as an experiment in midnight climax. The CIA's Technical Services Division Director, Sidney Globet, thought he was a security risk after going to Camp King since reports said Frank had talked to people like H.P. Alberni, a reporter on what was going on with the biological warfare at the camp. In a lawsuit that the family had, it is stated that Frank was planning to retire and had told one of his colleagues this, and this could also be an additional reason for why this happened. While here, Frank's drink was laced with LSD by Sydney for the operations of Midnight Climax. After he ingested it and some time after, he became paranoid and started feeling ill. So, Dr. Harold Abramson took Frank to New York. They were there for two days and he had interrogation techniques and other things performed on him to determine whether he was a security risk. During this, Frank suffers from a mental breakdown and CIA researcher Dr. Robert Lashbrook escorts Frank to the Chestnut Lodge in Rockville, Maryland and Dr. Harold then took Frank to the Stantler Hotel in New York the following evening. Dr. Harold decided to treat Frank temporarily with a combination of bourbon and a sedative Nurbentol, which was known to be very dangerous in combination. The next morning, Dr. Lashbrook was quoted saying he woke up to Frank jumping out of the window and they were on the 10th floor. The CIA claimed his death was a suicide based on Dr. Harold's statement on Frank's mental health earlier. Then, for 22 years, the story that the CIA released and said was official was Frank Olson committed suicide by leaping from a window on the 10th floor of the hotel that he stayed at in New York at 2.30 a.m. The Olson family filed a lawsuit and wanted an investigation into the death for their father. 
and the CIA stuck to their story for years until 1975, when Watergate happened, which caused the CIA and other government groups to come under investigation for certain undoings. Plus, the Rockefeller and Church Commission and Senate hearing caused the CIA to change their story related to Frank, but only the thing that changed was the reason for the suicide was changed from job stress to drug-induced. Soon after this, Gerald Ford personally gave the family an apology and told the CIA to give them a complete file and, and gave them a financial settlement of $75,000 in compensation. But the CIA never produced these files. So, still unhappy with the case, Eric Olson, Frank's son, spent the 80s and 90s trying to find out what happened. And in 1993, Eric exhumed his father's body and had forensic scientist James Starr to investigate. James found that Frank had been struck on the back of the head, then thrown out of the window, and later when a New York district attorney conducted an investigation for the U.S., the investigation into his death was inconclusive. And it is stated too by that same forensic coroner, James Starr, that Frank's death and the type of death that he died was almost word for word the methods detailed in the CIA's secret assassination manual issued 1953 and declassified in 1986. Then in 1994, Eric filed another lawsuit in which he took legal action alleging the CIA murdered one of its own agents and then attempted to pass it off as a suicide. Scott Glibert, lead consultant in the lawsuit stated, it's unfathomable that our own government could stand by as its agents operated on United States soil, killed an American citizen in cold blood, destroyed his family, and then allowed those directly responsible to walk away without so much as a blemish on their personal files. Instead of putting its energy and resources into doing what is right, the United States, including the, this administration, has sought to bury this and hide the truth. But it took till 2013 for the federal judge to dismiss the family's lawsuit saying the public record supports many of the allegations that follow far-fetched as they may seem and not doing much else besides that and in the early 2000s Catherine Olstead a historian professor in California uncovered documents in the Gerald Ford library on the Frank Olson case two documents between Former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney stating, Dr. Olson's job was so sensitive that it is highly unlikely that we would submit relevant evidence. And the second goes, The Olson lawyers will seek to explore all the circumstances of Dr. Olson's employment as well those concerning his death. In any trial, it may become apparent that we are concealing evidence for national security reasons and any statement or judgment reached, therefore, could be perceived as money paid to cover up the activities of the CIA. And that closes out Subproject 3. Then we move on to Subproject 16, which is only the continuation of Subproject 3 with an increased amount of funding, and that's about it. And then Subproject 23 was to develop certain drugs and for the specific other projects, both parts specific being redacted then had a secondary objective as study a variety of known 
pharmacological drugs and synthesize new chemical agents or modify existing ones with a total budget of 42700 Then the subproject increased in scope to also test the effectiveness of certain substances when administered to humans and wanted to authorize contractors to pay hospital expenses of certain people suffering from incurable cancer for the privilege of studying the effects of these chemicals to the terminally ill. With this, the yearly budget increased to $57,700. Then, Subproject 35. This had two separate objectives. The first is split into 17 smaller objections. I will only cover a few which were to find specific chemicals and then test the chemicals to promote illogical thinking, impulsivity, to discredit people in the public's eyes. Then, chemicals to mimic a disease. Another was chemicals to enhance interrogation techniques, torture, and quote-unquote brainwashing. Then, chemicals to cause paralysis in specific limbs or one or the other leg, chemicals to cause mental confusion, making it harder to lie, then chemicals which lower inhibitions, work efficiency when administered in undetectable amounts to people. Then the second part of this project was to find facilities or build them to house and conduct these experiments and maintain them. One state hospital was listed as having 1,135 beds with 140 people classified as criminal sexual psychopaths being tested on with four full-time psychiatric doctors with varying numbers of medical interns, two psychologists, four social workers, nurses and attendants were also stationed at the hospital, and the whole staff was highly qualified to deal with criminals. This project got a donation of $250,000 and a contribution of a million dollars from sources are redacted. Then they used Public Law 221 to equal those to get $3,000 in total funding for this subproject. But this subproject was closed early because of increased number of people's awareness of the agencies connected with the redacted facility. The decommission report states that 25 out of the 30 cases were completed, 8 of which had been recorded. And that is all for this subproject. Next is subproject 42. This was established to continue support of various subprojects and subprojects to be moved to redacted site and R&D support for subprojects other than that. Budget set at 5000 per six months. Then the last numbered project that we have any information on is subproject 149. This was to establish realistic testing of certain de developmental items and delivery systems of interest and was to find a suitable facility to conduct their experiments. The subproject also required the use of a specific person, but the name was redacted. Their budget was set at $10,000, then moved to $72,109. The facility used was 2,500 square feet, 
laboratories with a wide array of equipment and had a blast range on site. Also, for some reason, had a arrangement with a redacted organization or person to use their human cadavers. No reason why. Very weird. Midway through the subproject, it made progress report entailing instruments and numerous testing equipment were developed. Preliminary acceleration threshold data obtained for a liquid-filled glass simulated skull. With this simulated skull, they also obtained data on the nature and magnitude of pressure fluctuation within the glass skull subjugated to impact or sound waves propagated in the air. Then considerable data supporting the residence coronation theory of brain concussion. They went further on this last point stating techniques were devised to induce brain concussions without warning and no external trauma. Then when the recovered person awoken they could not remember how it occurred. Then the techniques were advanced and specified and isolate specific spots to hit on the brain and they even came up with multiple devices to cause concussions in various ways. Then they moved on to using blast pressure waves made in air with enough force to cause concussions. They also used tuned air waves and concentrated air using sound fields with acoustic lenses and refractors. The last two also resulted in convulsions as well. They also submitted a request to the last two in the brainwashing therapy experiments to use them in. A final proposal was made for an attempt to be made to make agents immune to brain concussions using techniques of putting a small amount of gas into their spinal cord this gas would make a little bubble and when hit with a unpredicted hit or force it would cause a concussion normally the bubble would be expanded and prevent the damage basically absorbing it that is our last numbered project the next project that was listed under MK Ultra is MK Naomi the main objective was to maim or kill targeted groups or individuals through the use of toxic and lethal biological agents. The only other information available is what Hank Abernely wrote in a memorandum listing his part of Naomi. How to knock off key people, make the death look as if it's from a natural cause such as methods to produce cancer and to make it appear as a heart attack. Now I'll go over some experiments which weren't listed under specific subprojects and don't have more than a paragraph or two of information. A uh, lot of redactions too involved in it, but these are also some things that are brought up in the Senate committee hearings. One project objectives were to study the possibility of drugs to abolish consciousness and thought and methods to administer drugs without the knowledge of a substance subject in a public environment. Another gruesome experiment detailed certain surgeries conducted on mentally handicapped individuals where hallucinogenics were given to them 
and no local anesthetic was administered, and the subjects were told to describe their visual experience as surgeons removed part of their cerebral cortexes. Then there's a memo about this experiment from Paul Haunch, who oversaw the experiment, said, It is possible that a certain amount of brain damage is of therapeutic value. After MKUltra ended, Paul became New York State Commissioner of Mental Hygiene. That's kind of scary. Then, a Whitey Bulger, a former organized crime boss, wrote about being an inmate tested on during MKUltra. While at a Atlanta penitentiary in 1957, he claimed, and others also claimed this, that they were dosed with LSD and quoted, eight convicts in panic and in paranoia. We had total loss of appetite, hallucinating. The room would change shape, hours of paranoia and feeling violent. We experienced horrible periods of living nightmares and even blood coming out of the walls. Guys turning into skeletons in front of me. I saw a camera change into the head of a dog. I felt like I was going insane. And that is all on that little portion. Then a Dr. Gary Hackney conducted behavior modification experiments into how much pain a subject could withstand at a VA hospital in Minnesota. He experimented on homeless vets in the area and during this coined the condition repressive memory syndrome or repressed memory syndrome. Then there was a series of experiments conducted at Edgewood Arsenal in Maryland. Here at least 7,000 U.S. Army soldiers were given LSD, some were unknowingly dosed, and then placed in sensory deprivation chambers and subjected to hostile interrogation techniques to induce anxiety, then monitored. During the LSD experiments, they were responsible for tennis professional Herod Balmer's, or Baller's death, who was stationed there at the time. Then the base moved to a drug listed as BZ and only as BZ, and given to 2,800 soldiers. This rendered most of them permanently damaged in various mental ways. BZ was later used in grenades and a 750-pound cluster bomb for biological warfare. Then in June 1964, Richard Helms changed MKUltra to MKSearch and established a new charter still focusing on behavioral modification and adding experiments to destabilize human personality by behavior disruptions, altered sex patterns, sensory deprivation, and drug usage. During this era, New York safe houses experimented, continued. Sidney Globert continued the use of a Baltimore biological laboratory to produce biological weapons out of the sight of other U.S. military groups. These were made unaware to other U.S. government groups because the custom chemicals were used in pharmaceuticals. Subproject 3 of MK Search specified Dr. James Hamilton using 400 to 1,000 inmates at a California medical facility at Vacaville for a range of experiments. Dr. Carl Piffer experimented with various drugs including LSD on inmates in a federal penitentiary in Atlanta. Lastly, Dr. Charles Jeschickler experimented on terminally 
ill cancer patients with a wide variety of drugs, and not much else is known since little documents were kept in the first place, but in January 1973, when Richard Helms was leaving, the CIA was ordered to destroy all documents pertaining to projects like Bluebird, Artichoke, Monarch, MKUltra, Midnight Climax, MK Search, and at least 20 other projects he had started in or been involved with. Testimony he gave later on why he destroyed those documents was Sidney came to me and said that he was retiring and that I was retiring and he thought it would be a good idea if these files were destroyed. I believed a part of our reason for thinking this was advisable was there had been relationships with outsiders in the government agencies and other organizations and that they would be sensitive in this kind of thing but that since the program was over and finished and done with we thought we would just get rid of the files as well so that anybody who was assisted in us in the past would not be subjected to follow-up questioning or embarrassment if you will this testimony was given in the 1977 Senate congressional hearing led by Senator Edward Kennedy but there were a series of hearings before this as well. All the hearings stem from a December 1974 article by the New York Times on claiming the CIA projects ran during the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s were done in a covert ops against the United States public. In response, first, President Ford established the Rockefeller Commission, headed by Vice President Nelson Rockefeller. This commission only uncovered that Frank Olson had been dosed with LSD. But other than that, they downplayed the project's scope and only released about a two-page report on the subjects investigated, mainly about the Frank Olson case. Then, on January 1975, the Senate, unpleased with the findings of the Rockefeller Commission, started the Church Committee, led by Senator Frank Church, and was to reveal whether the executive branch and directed the national intelligence agencies to carry out constitutionally questionable domestic security operations. The whole investigation lasted 16 months and were able to uncover a wide range of intelligence abuses by federal agents including the CIA, FBI, Internal Revenue Services, and national security agencies. They also uncovered projects unknown to the American public like NSA's Project Shamrock, Minaret. Both of these projects were wiretapping operations on the U.S. civilians for the intelligence community. Uh, FBI's Pro program, which was a covert action designed to disrupt and discredit the activities of groups and individuals deemed a threat to social order was revealed, and various projects of the CIA like Bluebird, Artichoke, and others were brought to light. Then their final report stated this, intelligence agencies have undermined the constitutional rights of civilians, primarily because checks and balances designed by the framers of the Constitution to assure accountability have not been applied. The only thing that resulted from this is the Executive Order 11905, which bans political assassination, then Executive Order 12036 expanded the other order 
but both of these were terminated in the 90s. There was also a committee set up by the House as the Nidzi Committee to focus on experiments that the CIA were involved in during the 60s and 70s, led by Representative Lucian Nedzi. But he had strong ties to the intelligence community, so this committee was replaced with the Pike Committee five months after it started. This committee was led by Representative Pike. But this committee actively started with a want to expose the CIA, and one participant even said the CIA was the enemy. This didn't sit well with the people at the CIA, and even though they agreed to cooperation, they instead started to withhold information. Pike stated on August 1975, What we have found thus far is a great deal of activity of non-cooperation. And the other members remarked it was like pulling teeth to get information from the CIA. And on the other hand, the CIA review staff stated on multiple requests from the Pike Commission for documents that the Pike's reasonings were silly and not released any documents. On the final report, it only shows supporting evidence found in the Church Committee reports. They also devoted an entire section to characterize the agency and the White House's cooperation during this. Some statements were cooperation was virtually non-existent and the executive branch practiced foot dragging, stonewalling, and deception in response to the committee's request for information. And nothing else really transpired from the Pike Committee besides just relevant information being revealed. No justice or prosecution followed. Then the Senate hearing led by Senator Edward Kennedy in 1977 with the main focus on MKUltra and brought some more details to light and interviewed some people involved in the experiments and overseeing of the experiments but this hearing again did not end in any prosecution or anybody having to be held accountable for actions done in these projects. And then this comes to the end of it all, but before I get to my thoughts, uh, most of the information known about these projects and what the CIA did during the 40s to the 70s comes from a John Star Cook, a former clear rank member of Scientology, but after seeing what Scientology really did, he left to experiment with psychedelics in the 60s. Then, later after the 70s hearings, started investigating the CIA projects and he also had a big connection to the CIA, one being his in-laws on his sister's side. Her husband was Sherman Kent, and he was one of Alan Dulles' most trusted agents. Uh, through Sherman, John Cook learned a lot of information pertaining to the projects, and with that was able to make a lot of Freedom of Information Act requests to get documents related to the CIA covert ops projects brought out to the light and published several articles related, related to the projects done in that time frame. Then along with John Cook, there are multiple other reporters that came out with information as well during the 80s and 90s, like the Washington Post in 1985 called for about 80 institutions and 185 private researchers to be held accountable for their actions specifically in the MKUltra projects.
And with that, we will end this campfire with going over the MK Ultra projects and subprojects. I kind of had to run through it a little bit quick because there was a lot of information and I just wanted to make sure I can fit it all in here since the time frame is three hours for recording time on uh, the app I'm using. But with that, and that's all the prominent information I can bring forward on what I've researched over the MK Ultra files. Uh, and that ends this campfire, so we'll get into the next one. So on this third campfire, I will get into my thoughts on the trail for tonight. Uh, and it's not much really, but first with Billy Hitchcock, uh, based off of his family background and his connections with Richard Helms, I do believe that it is very likely he was under the employ of the CIA during his time with the Brotherhood of Eternal Love and then you also had the fact of his financial uh, banks had CIA connections heavily involved with them so it seems very clear that he probably is a CIA asset willingly probably then to move on to Tim Leary he's a real odd character he, he keeps saying in public that he knew the CIA was controlling him in some aspects of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love like I talked about uh, two trails back and then last trail two I also mentioned a little bit of that as well uh, but then for the most part during the end of his life he started backtracking on that and just saying that he never took it directly from the CIA like money or anything like that but I, I don't know with him like it seems like he definitely could be a CIA operative especially with the Mary Pincrock story and all that stuff involved with him teaching her how to basically dose JFK and get him in an LSD function but he could just be doing that because he loved LSD and psychedelics it's really hard to tell with him and he only knows the truth really because most of the files that the CIA would have on him are destroyed or would have been destroyed and in my opinion it's probably 80% likely that he is a CIA operative either unknowingly or knowingly so he was being used either way and it should be kind of obvious that the people that were conducting these projects, overseeing them, authorizing them, and being involved in them, show that they were in violation of the entire Hippocratic Oath, especially the duty to patients section of the oath. And yes, I know that this isn't really a legally binding document in any sense of the word course or way it's an oath strictly taken as professionals to make sure that you can have patients that trust you and it's kind of just a way to pass on your knowledge to people that are ethically responsible and most of the time what I've read on the oath is you have to take that oath before you get into medical school so even to get a medical license in most cases you have to take the Hippocratic Oath and after reading that whole thing it does a lot to basically protect patients in that and from all reading all that and modern day practices in medicine, I don't think any doctor anymore holds any credit to the Hippocratic Oath at all. Because most of the statements made in that Hippocratic Oath wouldn't allow doctors to sell medicine, basically. It is a violation of giving medicine for profit based on the Hippocratic Oath itself because it's unethical to introduce money into a concept for helping and healing people. So right off the bat, every single doctor in America and everywhere else is in violation of this. And I get you have to make a living, you have to do all this shit, but if you take this oath, you're not really technically supposed to take money. So, but that out of the way, like, most of these doctors, like I said, they probably didn't follow the Hippocratic Oath. They were in violation of it during these MK Ultra projects and various other ones. And then going into more legal stuff too, um, 
these projects were in violation of the 5th and 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution, which states that nobody should be deprived of life, liberty, or the pursuit of happiness without due process of the law, and as well violated the core Bill of Rights, being as like most of these people were objected to unwitting participation in these projects, unknowing participation in these projects, and in most cases were heavily harmed during said projects. Like stated in the most last trial, the BZ drug, where it messed up 2,800 soldiers. They are incapacitable to work ever again. They are stuck in asylums to this day probably. Like, they, they were known to just trash people and that is one theory that also percolates with the homeless issue that we are currently having that a lot of these projects use people that are now homeless that we've seen this huge booming population of homeless and these could be just older cast offs from this these projects back in the day and now we're just seeing the ramifications of that because now they're kind of being destabilized mentally a little bit more with age so now they're just kind of becoming crazy and then also you have the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was created on December 10th, 1948, which, similar to the Hippocratic Oath, isn't really a legally binding document at all, but is a standard held by most international countries in an agreement to protect human rights. And obviously these projects were, again, completely in violation of any human rights standards, especially if even if you give consent to a lot of these experiments, what they did in these experiments are hugely illegal just on what they tried to accomplish. So even buying out people wanting to do these projects and being involved in them, just the fact of their mission statements, their objectives, their goals was illegal from the standpoint right up front. And even if the U.S. government has drugs illegal, that doesn't make it legal for the U.S. government itself to then test with them. If it's illegal for the public, it's still illegal for the U.S. government, regardless of what their decision or ruling or opinion on it is. It's a matter of fact. It's not up for discussion. Like, there was some statement of somebody trying to get a NDR, IND, sorry, IND from the captain for testing illegal drugs as a new research project. That whole concept should be illegal on its front end anyways. And then, to, to kind of follow up with that, you have the Nuremberg Code, which was set up after doctors were put on trial for Nazi war crimes in World War II for doing these exact same experiments that the U.S. was done in MKUltra just with what we are aware of now. And like I stated before, too, in the opening, Project Paperclip brought over Nazi scientists that were in charge of these concentration camps, in charge of these illegal experiments that the doctor's trials were supposed to help hold them accountable for and hold their crimes accountable in. But more than 80% of the doctors that were supposed to be held on trial for these Nuremberg trials were in the United States or Soviet Russia before the war even ended. And they continued their research, as stated earlier, in these MKUltra projects. And yes, some of it is up to speculation, but yet some of it has documented proof of what experiments these 
ex-Nazis did in the United States for the United States government. But you're entitled to your own opinions. You can take it or leave it. You can think that these might be fabricated documents too, even if they are from FOIA requests or anything like that or documented other sources. It's really up to you. Whatever you think is on the subject, you believe I presented uh, hopefully adequate information or a scope of information at least to get you interested enough to do your own research or explore this topic further on your own and possibly come to a different conclusion than I did. This week's poll will be what's your opinion on the MK Ultra or other projects related or similar to? Yes, they occurred. No, they didn't. Or other. And that kind of wraps up my thoughts on this whole trail for this week. And that ends the camp, the third campfire. So let's get on to the mythological minute in a moment. So this week's mythological minute is in China, and it is the Luan bird, L-U-A-N or the Linaño, L-U-A-N-N-I-A-O. This bird is said to live 820 li from the beginning of the second guideway through the western mountains of the Ladies' Bed Mountain and presides over the northern slope. The Luan was regarded only second to the Fung Hong bird among the divine birds and is often confused with it as well. The bird is born of the sperm of a red god and has the form of a pheasant or chicken with a very large tail plume. Primarily colored red with five colored markings on it. It is said to wear a shield as a hat and have a dead crimson snake on its chest and appears to stomp or tread on snakes as well. Luan is also musical. They've been seen to sing spontaneously in parallel with the spontaneous dancing of the Fungwang bird. It sings in five standard pitches and will appear if it hears hymns to rulers are sung. People often saw them as omens of peace in the world when seen. <clears throat> now a portion from the Warring States period on the Luan. Luan was presented as tribute by the Northwestern tribes to King Xing of Zhou for submission to his virtuous rule as a signifying of its great peace he brought. And a second little insert from where they are found, and this comes from the Classic of Mountains and Sea, Book 11, The Classic Regions Within the Seas the West. To the west of the open bright, there are the divine feng bird and the luan bird, which wear snakes on their head and tread snakes underfoot. And on their breast, these birds wear a scarlet snake. North of the open bright, there are the look flesh creatures, pearl tree, the patterned jade tree, the sacred tree, the never die tree, and also the fung and long bird wearing shields on their head. And that finishes up this week's mythological minute. And with that, that finishes up this week's trail with LSD and its shadow, part two. 
I hope you enjoyed, which this kind of ended up becoming a three-part series, starting with the Brotherhood of Eternal Love Cult, and just kind of stemming forward from that. All uh, links will be down in the show notes for where I got my information. All music will be referenced in the bottom for credit. The website where you can find us on Anchor will be down below as well, and our Facebook link too if you want to get out for the poll. And if you want to contact us, the Facebook page is also one of the best places to go to. And this has been the Great Journey Podcast with your trail guide, Luke Keish. And I'll be here stoking the fire until you guys join me for another trail. Have a good morning, good afternoon, and good night to all those who have joined me in these dark woods. Shake the hands of the Holy Ghost.